John's Gospel, part 19. We have a really interesting text this morning, and I'm calling this, entitling this, The Deliberately Provocative Grace of Jesus. The Deliberately Provocative Grace of Jesus. We're at chapter 5 in John's Gospel, and I've got 17 verses I'm going to read. Follow along. I hope you have a Bible somewhere of your own, not just what we provide on the screen, either on your iPad, your iPhone, or you can even do it the old-fashioned way if you want. 5.1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem a sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And in these lay multitudes of individuals, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And in a sense, don't you think, like, is that the dumbest question ever asked? 38 years, lame lying there. Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, seven, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going another steps down before me, you can get a picture of this guy hobbling along, no wheelchairs back then, trying to scrape his way into the pool for healing as the waters are stirred up. And he's never in there on time. Eight. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. So he took up his bed, he stands up, he grabs his bed, a mattress of some kind, and he walks. John includes, now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. 11. But he answered them, well, the man who healed me, that man, said to me, take up your bed and walk. 12. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed, he did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well, sin no more. Jesus, he always does that at the end. Remember the woman at the well? Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Interesting. 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. I'll talk more about that verse in another message. So, John records it and says this is the third of eight signs 
that get recorded in his account. And John means for us to take note of a corner that's being turned in this account. From this point on, you'll see it, from this point on, there are two separate storylines beginning to unfold in John's account, and both of them gain momentum. John tells us up front that all of these signs, the eight signs, were designed to build faith in Jesus, God the Son. He says he writes all of this stuff so people would believe and find life in his name. That's that's 20, 30, and 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. John says, I didn't record everything. But these are written, here's why, so that you may believe, we've been talking about belief a lot, that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the bright side, the bright side of John's gospel. But there's, there's another side. There's a darker thread as well. John's already told all careful readers that faith and life are not going to be the only responses to Jesus. People will polarize then and now. People will polarize around Jesus, not around forgiving your enemies, or loving one another, or they don't polarize around that, but around Jesus. He's the pivot point in history. Even professing Christians will embrace some of the things Jesus said, and they'll find other things to this day intolerant, offensive. He will be, he will be the great divider of mankind. Not everyone will find life. Some will reject. Some will remain under wrath. We don't talk about it, but John does repeatedly. He was in the world. The world was made through him. but The world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Well, what happens if they don't receive him? 36 of chapter 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. John's already said that. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but there's the W word that a lot don't use anymore, the wrath of God remains on him. The church will never make sense of the different reactions to the gospel in this world right now if she forgets that these two ideas were rooted in the foundation of the New Testament. We, we will never get just one reaction to our commitment to Christ in this world. Not going to happen. It's predicted that it's not going to happen. Not everyone will treasure the gospel truth that has changed your life. And, and if, we, if we begin to gauge the worth and truth of the gospel by the reaction of those who mock it, we're going to have a very shaky foundation for our faith. Because we're told in advance that many, perhaps most, many of the people with whom we rub shoulders will find our faith ridiculous, or certainly in terms of political correctness, it's going to be socially offensive. We're told that. We are told to expect this 
and to see that it's a fulfillment of the Scriptures when it happens. The gospel did not just suddenly become countercultural and offensive with Gen X and Gen Z. It was offensive in the first century, <laughs> just as offensive as it is today. I have a book on my shelf. It's a great book, and it deals with the persecution in the early church. And the title of the book is, Why on Earth Would Anybody Become a Christian in the First 300 Years? It was a mess to follow Jesus. Still is. God isn't shocked by this. So all this long introduction to say this is what John brings to the table with this third sign that we're going to be studying. Not everyone reacted the same way. And this text, this account called the third sign in John's gospel, it's, it's significant because it is the first, not the last, but the first specific account of rejection of Jesus, pushback, things not going smoothly. We're starting to see what John meant in 111 when he said he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So you ready? We're going to study this. Point number one. There is something particularly tender in the way Jesus reached out to this lame man. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. There was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man who had been there had been an invalid for 38 years, and when Jesus saw him lying there, knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up while I'm going another steps down before me hard. I try not to be just sort of melodramatic dealing with biblical text. They're just factual truths, but they do reach the heart. I don't think I'm stretching John's meaning when I point out the contrast between he emphasizes the multitude of invalids in verse 3, there's a multitude, and the one man he speaks to in verse 5. There's such a contrast there. But it does make you ask, why didn't Jesus heal everybody by the pool? Let's vote on it. How many say Jesus could have healed everybody with just a word if he had so desired? Okay, I think that's passed. He could. Why didn't he? Or at least maybe a couple dozen if I were Jesus, I think that's what I would have done. One person out of a multitude? All we know is Jesus was somehow drawn to this 
one man that he touched and he healed. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, do you want to be healed? Here's what I think. Text doesn't say. John tells us that Jesus was drawn to this one man. He tells us that. He hints that there was a reason. He had been there a long time. This man had, had, you know, it's one thing to have a hopeless situation. It's another thing to just have to endure it for a long, long time. So I think Jesus picks this man not just because of his illness, but look at his situation. Different texts, I'll, I'll do it in another message. Talk about an angel that comes down and stirs up the water. If you have an old King James that has that in there, different manuscripts don't include that phrase. Don't freak out about that. But the water gets stirred up, and that's his only hope. And he hasn't got a ghost of a chance of being the first one in. <laughs> Not a ghost of a chance. So this guy is... Sick, but here's, here's what else he is. Hopeless. Hopeless. Hopelessness piles up on top of hurt, and what happens is you just, discouragement. So consider this. While there is much speculation about the placing of verse 4 and exactly what that's all about, What we know for sure is, John tells us that for 38 years, not one person, not one person ever helped this guy into the pool. It's a long time to have everybody around you ignore you. What does it do to a person of urgent need to be passed over for a whole lifetime? What kind of future expectation does this man have? What view has formed of his fellow man in this guy for the last 38 years when nobody will help him? What questions does he start to ask about the goodness of God? About fairness? You hear stuff like that, don't you? All we know for sure from the wonderful detail that John sketches out is as Jesus looked over this teeming mass of broken humanity, he sees one man more hopelessly despairing and sunken than all the others. One man in the whole crowd who seemed least likely to have anything in his situation ever changed. Is that you? A person who seems so unlikely to ever have his situation changed. That's the one Jesus wants to talk to. If Jesus had just quickly waved his hand over the masses and pronounced them all healed, and who would ever say he couldn't do that? But if he had, we would have forever missed 
this greater revelation of our Lord's compassion for those who feel the most hopeless. And I need to know that about my Lord. He's drawn to that. Jesus greatly desires to reach the most unchangeable. He gives hope to the hopeless. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Just on the side, notice the strange question that Jesus asks of this lame man. It's in verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Duh. Most of us would say, are you kidding? Of course he wants to be healed. 38 lame years. Who wouldn't want to be healed? And I hope you don't think me uncompassionate when I tell you, living for a long time without the touch of grace on your life frequently changes the way people look to God for the future. Sure does. People who needs God need God's help in some way, not just physical healing, but really need God's help. They can go through phases dealing with their broken situations. They can, they can move from expecting God to touch to desiring God to touch to getting used to God not touching and meeting their expectations to getting upset and not wanting anything to do with God. They'll usually quit going to church nine times out of ten. It's not a dumb question. Do you want to be healed? And it's so true to a very basic spiritual law of life that before Jesus touches this lame man's legs, he wants to speak to the condition of his heart. It's a matter of, it's a mistake to assume inward desires Two, the same miracle that brought grace to the lame man, look at this, aroused hatred in the Jewish leaders. That's the striking thing. Five, eight, and nine, and then 18. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Here's a problem. Now, the day was the Sabbath. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to, look at this, kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Wow. Healing, hatred, just verses apart. They're really upset with this. It's a guy that's been lame for 38 years. Jesus touches him, and he's healed, and they want to kill him. Yeah, you can't have that kind of stuff going on, can you? Sick people, well, we're not going to have it. But that's not just the whole issue.
Nowhere is this warped response to Jesus' grace more obvious than in the ridiculous question these Jews bring. It's in that 12th verse. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And you go, are you kidding? Not who healed you in such an unbelievable way. Who told you to take up your bed? Yeah, that's the issue. Outside of the resurrection of Jesus, this might be the biggest miracle these Jewish leaders will ever witness, and all they can see is there's a broken Sabbath regulation here. There's something seriously wrong. We're, we're reading words of, of incredible blindness. We're, we're looking at people who have just, even in their religion, have grown numb to God, right in front of them, working. Years ago, a very aged G. Campbell Morgan wrote these simple words on this text. Quote, on the human level, what Jesus did that day and what he said that day cost him his life. They never forgave him. And this leads to another interesting fact in John's gospel. Why, why did Jesus heal so many people on the Sabbath? Have you read it and noticed that? He's just in their face with it. In terms of the miracles of healing that we have recorded, John says there's a lot that aren't recorded, but of the ones we know about, most of them were performed by Jesus, it seems, deliberately on the Sabbath. So, so what's he trying to do? Why not just ask people, could you come back tomorrow? I'll make you whole. This is especially probing when we remember that Jesus knew in advance the kind of reaction he was going to get from his ministry. And the answer is found in remembering, remembering, John records these miracles as signs. They're not just compassionate deeds. They are that. But that's not all they are. They're signs. Signs point to something. And what they point to is Jesus is demonstrating he's the fulfillment of that whole old covenant system. All those rules, all those laws, all those regulations, the whole old covenant. In other words, Jesus is deliberately provocative in healing this lame man. Think about it. What makes Jesus, he, he, he heals the man, okay? He heals the man. What possibly could motivate Jesus to say, oh, and when you get up, I want you to carry your bed with you. What's he doing? Who does that? After that kind of a miracle, why wouldn't you just say, glory to God, you're healed. Go, man. No, you're healed. Oh, 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 that, that bed. I want you to carry that on the Sabbath. He's working something here, working through something. Here's what's going on. Thus says the Lord, take care for the sake of your love, your lives. Do not, do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day. 
or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. So yeah, Jesus knows what he's doing. Jesus knows he's setting up a controversy. He knows he's forcing the issue of keeping the old covenant. In his words to this lame man, he's showing the religious community and the whole world since that he is the end of all other religious systems. Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. He's Lord of the Sabbath. He said that. He's the completion. So this third healing sign is going to give Jesus the opportunity into entering the only debate that matters with the whole religious community. They're going to be forced to engage the light of the world, and their rejection of Jesus will be exposed as the real healing that needs to take place. They're going to be forced to acknowledge Jesus is who he said he was. This is what the presence of Jesus does to all other faiths. Three. We're almost done. Fresh grace leads to a new life. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is all they can think about. It's the Sabbath. Not lawful for you to take up your bed. And he, and he does, this guy does all he can do. Well, the guy, the guy who healed me, he said, take up your bed and walk. So now they want to know, okay, who, who said that? Who said that to you? Who said, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed didn't know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple good, thanking God, said to him, see, you are well. I want to talk about that. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. It's good that Jesus found this man in the temple after his healing. One assumes he was there in his own way, giving thanks to God for his newfound legs. There are a lot of people who receive grace in different forms and just blindly go on their way, attributing it to some kind of good break. This is not this guy, right to the temple. And then we have to come to terms with these blunt words from Jesus, the one who healed him. See, you are well, sin no more, that, that nothing worse may happen to you. Worse? Lame 38 years? What are we going to make of this? Was Jesus telling this man that his sin was the cause of his lameness? Question A. Also, was Jesus saying that sin is always the cause of sickness? Well, we know the answer to the second question for sure because Jesus had to straighten this out with his disciples. Same letter, just we haven't got to this chapter yet. 9, 1 to 3. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. You can see where the disciples are coming from. His disciples said, Rabbi, who sinned? Somebody, somebody's sinning here. Look at he's blind. This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus answered, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. 
So no, there's no straight line correlation between personal sickness and personal sin. It is true that all sin entered the world through the fall. This is not the way God made the world. But not every person who gets sick is being punished for some sin. So so what then is the meaning of Jesus' stern words to this lame man? And they are kind of stern. Actually, Jesus never does say that his lameness was the result of some personal sin. Whatever questions we might raise, that conclusion isn't in the text. What Jesus does say, and I think what he intends to say, is grace received is meant to manifest itself in a new life lived. Don't sin anymore. Is he expecting sinless perfection? Well, no. Here's the direction of your life. Grace. Any form of grace It's freely given. It's not earned. It's always an act of extreme kindness. But but while grace is never earned, it's never earned, grace received is always transforming. My dad years ago used to say, grace comes the way electricity comes. It brings power with it. It's not just cleansing. It's not just healing. It's not just miracles. It's not just provision. It's power. It's morally engaging. It draws the recipient of grace close to Jesus. How could it not? Church needs to rethink it. We've got a lot of people who are at the place where they think that grace comes like God just pays your visa bill and gives the card back to you and lets you run it up again. That's not how grace comes. Life in Christ doesn't work that way. can't work that way. Grace comes into the heart. And all the cleansing and forgiveness that it brings, what that does is not just erase my past sin. It does do that. But what it does is it changes the motive of my serving God. I love him. It's not the old covenant of works. I love what he's done for me. I could never, of course, pay him back. But faithfulness isn't a chore. It's a delight because of grace received. Everybody understand what I'm saying? 